Several episodes ago, I talked about the legends people around the world tell of creation, and their stories of the Garden of Eden and memories of snakes. Those traditions all started somewhere. And this point in history, where we are now when people left the Tower of Babel behind and spread out and separated from one another, this is where those stories got their start. Until people left Babel, everyone had the same history. Once they separated, their histories started going different ways too. In the last episode, I talked about Ham's children and where they went after God confused all the languages at the Tower of Babel. Some of Ham's descendants became the Babylonians. Others migrated and settled in Canaan and in the Arabian Peninsula. Those founded cities like Sidon and became the seafaring Phoenicians. Another branch of Ham's children continued on westward and came to the Nile River and founded what would become the Egyptian Empire. But that's not where these stories end. That's just Ham's branch of the family. Noah had two other sons. The oldest was Japheth, and while we don't know much about Japheth himself, Genesis does tell us about some of his kids and grandkids. And this episode is about them. In the last episode with Ham's kids, I started at Babel with the people who stayed there and then traced each of his sons as they went further and further away. Japheth's family, though, went in a lot of different directions. His name might be related to the word extend. And to try to keep track of them, I want to follow one branch of his family at a time. In this case, Japheth's son Javan and Javan's later descendants. First, after leaving Babel, Javan's family traveled west, perhaps working their way along the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys back to their headwaters in the eastern part of modern Turkey. From there, near 2,600 feet above today's sea level, they may have begun the long downhill march westward, perhaps seeing some of Turkey's more than 100 mountains towering over 10,000 feet high, maybe feeling the earthquakes the region is known for rumbling beneath their feet. From the source of the Euphrates River, the pioneers would have had to travel more than 500 miles, perhaps seeing things never before explored, until they came to the western coast of Asia Minor and found the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. There, the summers and winters would be warmer than the mountains further inland, and it was probably a good place to settle and build homes and farms. The whole journey may have taken a year, or maybe 10 years, they may have traveled and settled and had children and then waited for the next generation before venturing further. However long it took, though, scholars generally agree that the people who settled along the western part of modern Turkey traced their family tree back to Ion, a name that's the same as Javan, and they called themselves the Ionians. That's Japheth's son Javan, but Genesis also talks about some of Javan's sons. Giving my best guess at pronouncing the names and places in this episode, the first son that Genesis names is Elisha. The city of Elis in Greece is likely named after him. These people might have been the first to settle on the island of Cyprus, too, a place that used to be known as Alasia. And Josephus suggests that the Aeolians, one of the four main people groups in ancient Greece, trace their origins 
back to Elisha. Beyond this, you may find Elisha's name in Greek mythology as the Elysian Fields, the Greek name for paradise. Another name in the list of Javan's descendants is Kittim. This is probably a tribe, not a person, because Kittim is a plural noun, so it refers to a group rather than an individual. The Kittim, then, were probably a tribe that gave their name to what was once a capital city on Cyprus known as Kittian, the modern city of Larnaca. Before I go on to some of Javan's other descendants, I should mention the stories that these sons of Javan remembered, stories that they passed along to their children. Perhaps you've heard of Greek mythology? It's disclaimer time, and I'm going to offer two of them. First, I want to make it clear that I am nowhere close to being an expert in Greek mythology. It's complicated, it's inconsistent, and there's a lot of it. Second, just because some of these myths might have a grain of reality, of true history buried within them, that doesn't mean all of them do. There's plenty of reason to think that lots of myths are just made-up stories. Beyond that, the earliest written source we have for legends from Greek mythology are the writings of Hesiod and Homer, from around 700 BC. This leaves a gap of around 1,500 years between when Japheth's family first left Babel and when the history of the Greeks was written down in the version we have today. That's lots of time for stories to shift and change. Still, considering all of that, there are some details, names, and legends from Greek mythology that line up rather coincidentally with what you find in Genesis. I'll start at the beginning. Genesis tells of the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, and of Eve being tempted by the serpent and disobeying God. Greek legends describe a Garden of the Hesperides, which Euripides, an early Greek playwright, called, quote, God's quiet garden by the sea, end quote. That garden was the place where Zeus, the chief god in Greek mythology, met his wife Hera, and it was the location of a tree of golden apples guarded by a snake that was coiled around it. In Genesis, Eve is created and then eats the forbidden fruit, disobeying God. In Greek legends, there's the story of Zeus, the king of the gods, having a craftsman god fashion the first woman, Pandora, out of dirt, before giving her to Epimetheus, a man whose name means afterthought, as a wife. A wife who later opened a jar and let evil loose into the world. I mentioned some of those details in an earlier episode, but the links between Genesis and Greek legends don't stop with creation. You can find stories of the flood from Genesis in Greek lore too. Though, in Greece, there are three different flood stories. These flood stories might have all been local events, and they may have happened anywhere from 500 to 1500 years after the flood described in Genesis. But the first two of these flood stories include details of a worldwide flood. And of these, the second tale, the story of the flood Deucalion lived through, is the most well-known. In that legend, the water overwhelms the earth until Zeus drains it away. The survivors of the flood, a man named Deucalion and his wife Pyrrha, then come down from a mountain and create a race of people from stones, with the belief that some of those descendants were the Greeks. Compare that to Noah, 
who survived the flood, and his son Japheth had descendants who became the Greeks. Beyond those parallels, there may be some memory of what happened after the flood, too. Because in Greek legends, there was a messenger goddess named Iris, who walked on a rainbow to deliver her messages. Her name means speaker or messenger. But there's also the idea that it could be related to the words, I join. Put a different way, Iris was the goddess of rainbows, whose job included bringing messages and returning peace to the natural world. That's awfully similar to the message of the rainbow described in Genesis. If you go on from there, in Genesis, the flood is followed by the story of Babel, where men built a tower in rebellion against God. In Greek lore, Homer mentions the story of Otis and Ephialtes, giants who decided to attack the gods by piling up mountains so they could get to heaven, with the suggestion that they would have succeeded if the god Apollo hadn't stopped them. Beyond the stories, there's also another connection between the names you find in Genesis and the names in Greek stories. I mentioned earlier that Javan from Genesis is probably the same as Ion, the father of the Ionian Greeks, but those stories also say that one of Ion's forefathers was Iapetos, a name scholars say is the same as Japheth. And while you can't necessarily believe the dates in ancient records, and different sources give different dates, it is interesting to note that Eusebius, an early Christian historian, mentions the earliest king of the Greeks was named Eglialius, and that he began to rule in 2089 BC. This would put the start of Greek history only around a hundred or so years after people left Babel behind. And thinking about those years, right after the flood and the Tower of Babel, those years when people didn't know what lay across the mountains or on the other side of the sea, those years when the geography we take for granted today was a mystery. And thinking about that, I wonder a little about what happened in the story of some of Javan's other descendants. Genesis calls them the Dodanim. I say them because, just like the Kittim mentioned earlier, the Dodanim were probably a tribe, not a person. In another place, later in the Bible, it uses an R in the name, Rodanim, to refer to them, a name that probably shows up on the island of Rhodes, off the coast of Turkey. As for the name Dodanim, though, it's linked by scholars to the city of Dodona in central Greece. I talked about the idea of ancestor worship in the last episode, that people living later on looked back on their ancestors and worshipped them as gods. And you get another possible example of that here. In this town of Dodona, they worshipped a god named Jupiter Dodonaeus. The word Jupiter can be translated as Heavenly Father, making this the worship of Heavenly Father Dodonaeus. Beyond that, though, there's more to the story of the Dodanim than just this site of Dodona, because near Dodona, on the western side of the Greek peninsula, there lived a people called the Dardani. And this name ties the Dodanim, mentioned in Genesis, to Dardanus, an interesting character in Greek lore. Earlier, I mentioned that there are Greek legends of three different floods, and that the first two might be linked to the story of Noah. 
The third flood, though, sounds much more like a local event. And the main character in that story was a man named Dardanus. Dardanus was the first king of a mountainous region of central Greece. While he was king, a flood came that covered all the lowlands and the valleys. The people fled into the mountains, but there wasn't enough there to support them. So while some stayed, Dardanus led the rest as settlers to the island today known as Samothrace, but which was previously called Dardania. Another version of the story has Dardanus already on that island when the flood hits. The interesting thing about this story is the location of the island of Samothrace. It sits at the tip of an arm of the Mediterranean Sea that reaches up between Turkey and Greece, right near the straits that connect the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. That's the geography today. But geologists think that those straits didn't always exist because the sea level was lower due to ice caps and glaciers. This made the Mediterranean and Black Seas separate bodies of water. As the theory goes, the ice melted and it raised the level of the Mediterranean until it flooded across the barrier separating the two seas, forming the straits we have today. And that's what brings me back to this story of Dardanus and the island of Samothrace. Because local legends say that it wasn't the Mediterranean that flowed into the Black Sea, but that the flood went the other way. In their story, the rivers that flowed into the Black Sea raised the water level until the Black Sea crested and burst through the land bridge, separating it from the Mediterranean. And that was the source of the flood Dardanus lived through. As I said, there's disagreement here. The ancient legend says the Black Sea flowed into the Mediterranean. The modern theory says the Mediterranean flowed into the Black Sea. Today, though, water actually flows both ways. You see, the Black Sea is less salty than the Mediterranean because fresh water from the Danube and Volga rivers flow into it. And salt water is denser than fresh water because the sodium and chlorine atoms dissolved in it add mass, but not much volume. Put this together, and when you get to the straits that connect the two seas, the lighter fresh water from the Black Sea flows on the surface, into the Mediterranean, while the heavier salt water from the Mediterranean flows along the bottom of the channel back into the Black Sea. The current in the straits switches direction about 32 to 64 feet beneath the surface. But regardless of how the water flows today, put yourself in the shoes of the people who were there on that first day, when that land bridge broke and those straits formed. Maybe it was a family who had just set out to settle somewhere else. They'd crossed the thin strip of land only to have it disappear in a rush of water behind them, cutting off their way back. Or think of the people living far from the newly formed straits who watched the water rise, seeing it get closer and closer to their villages, and then flooding roads and homes. They have to retreat uphill and find new places to live. On the other side of the straits, people watch the water drain away, leaving docks and boats grounded where the coastline used to be. And beyond the immediate crisis, this changes all the maps. There are now new harbors, new shoals, new rocks hidden under the water. And this wouldn't be the only time this sort of thing happened in the decades and centuries after the flood. The climate and geography of the world was still settling into its new pattern. For the last 200 years, the study of geology has focused on these long time frames, on the belief that it took millions of years for canyons to erode and mountains to rise. And that idea has become so common 
that we forget how fast things really happened. We forget how fast the world changed, according to the history in Genesis, and how it was probably still changing during the lifetimes of the people who settled the world right after leaving Babel. For them, nothing in the world was stable. Nothing about geography was consistent. You might never know if a mountain would become a volcano. You wouldn't know when a peninsula might turn into an island or a lake suddenly drain away into the sea. There's an epilogue to the story of Dardanus. As I said earlier, one version of the story has Dardanus on the island of Samothrace when the flood comes, and it says he drifted on a raft to the coast of Turkey. And you find Dardanus's name filtering down through the geography around that area. Egyptian records call a place near the Aegean Sea Dardanayu, and mention the land of the Dardania among people who were helping the Hittites. And perhaps most famous today, while one of these straits between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean is called the Bosporus, the other is called the Dardanelles. Remember, this story of Dardanus, this might all be some version of the biography of the forefather of the Dodanim, the people mentioned in Genesis. And though the story of Dardanus ends in Turkey, the legends of his descendants were just getting started. Descendants that show up rather often, first as the founders of a kingdom and a city in Turkey that came to be known as Troy. If there's some uncertainty and speculation connecting Japheth's descendants, the Dodanim, to the character Dardanus from Greek stories, there's even more when you keep going past Dardanus to the Trojans and their kids. Many of the stories we have of Troy and the Trojans come from Homer, a Greek poet, and Virgil, a Roman one. Homer tells of the climax of the war between Troy and its Greek enemies, and Virgil tells about how Troy was defeated and destroyed at the end of the war. Homer moves on to other subjects, but for Virgil, this is only the beginning of the story. He continues by telling about one Trojan who escaped. That Trojan was named Aeneas, and Virgil's story is found in the Aeneid. Aeneas escapes Troy as the city is destroyed, he flees on a ship across the Mediterranean, has lots of adventures, and then years later settles in Italy. There are people in Italy already, perhaps other descendants of Javan who'd traveled there before, and Aeneas settles among them and becomes the ancestor of the Romans. Virgil's story about Aeneas, written during the early days of the Roman Empire, is full of legendary details about how Aeneas had to deal with one god or another who meddled with his journey. And this makes the story look like pure mythology, like Virgil is just creating an origin story for the Romans. And to a certain extent, that's probably true. But Virgil didn't invent the whole story. The idea that the Romans originally came from Troy, that detail went back at least a few hundred years before his time. Around 150 years before Virgil wrote, when the Roman Empire expanded and came to control the region around Troy, they added territory to the Trojan holdings as a reward because they considered it the home of their ancestors. Later on, Julius Caesar and his family claimed they were descendants of Aeneas himself, and all this before Virgil ever wrote the Aeneid. But that doesn't mean these legends are true. Even 2,000 years ago, one Roman historian said they were more poetry than history. 
To me, the story is interesting because it gives us at least a chance to trace this branch of Japheth's family a little further through history. And while many Roman legends adapted stories from Greek mythology and changed the names, there are still unique details that pop up. Details that sound like the history of the world Genesis describes. For instance, while the Greeks called their metalworking god Hephaestus, the Roman metalworking god was named Vulcan. Take a moment to think about that name, Vulcan. It has the same last two syllables as Tubal-Cain, the person Genesis lists as the father of metalworking. Nimrod is another place where similar names come up, because there's some suspicion that Nimrod might be remembered as the Roman god Bacchus, in part because the name Bacchus could come from Barkus, meaning the son of Cush, which is exactly how Genesis describes Nimrod. And while I didn't find any mention of building a tower to heaven in Roman stories, they do tell about a time when the languages were scrambled. In that story, one Roman author says that for a long time people lived without cities or laws, and that they all spoke the same language. Then, the god Mercury divided their languages, and people began to argue with one another. Even as far away as the Romans were from Japheth, with 1,500 to 2,000 years of history in the way, they still remembered some details of the history found in Genesis. The story of the descendants of Japheth's son Javan doesn't end in Italy, though. The last son of Javan mentioned in Genesis is Tarshish, and he might have started by founding the city of Tarsus in what is today the country of Turkey. After that, he or his descendants traveled west, perhaps as the Tyrheni tribe, who are thought to be the ancestors of the Etruscans in Italy. Regardless of the route from Babel, though, scholars often give the eventual destination as Tartessus, a city that used to exist at the mouth of the Guadalquivir River in southern Spain. Though that's about where we run out of clues. We have legends and stories from Greece and Rome that help us make a guess about their history. But not much to work with from these early descendants of Tarshish. Instead, if you want to trace this family tree one step further, you first have to go back to Italy and follow the path of one of the descendants of Aeneas. Because that earlier legend of Aeneas, who settled in Italy and founded what would eventually become the Roman civilization, that's only the beginning of another story. After Aeneas died, his great-grandson named Brutus was banished from Italy. Brutus first traveled back to Greece, where other refugees from the Trojan War were being kept as slaves. In the course of the story, he leads an uprising and frees those slaves. Sails away from Greece, travels the length of the Mediterranean Sea around past Spain, and goes north along the coast. He fights battles in what is today France, and finally lands on an island called Albion. Brutus and his company of men settle there, and he renames the island after himself, calling it Britain. He also builds a city and calls it New Troy, a name that over time changes to Troy Navant, then Care Lud, and eventually London. The story goes on from there to list various descendants and the line of kings that came after Brutus, tracing the rulers down through history to the Middle Ages. This story comes from a translation made in the 1100s of a supposedly older chronicle of the kings of Britain. And I understand if you're skeptical. 
This source isn't very old, certainly not when you compare it to the earliest Roman or Greek stories. And there's 2,000 years between the copies we have and the history they claim to tell. But there are some interesting details that suggest there may be some truth in this chronicle. First, when describing Brutus's journey across the Mediterranean from Greece, past the Straits of Gibraltar and up to England, the places the ships pass are listed in the right order from east to west, and exactly the way you'd expect if it were the story of a sailor. And it's not as though someone trying to forge this story during the Middle Ages could just read these names off of a map. The records we have today suggest that you'd have to collect the writings of a number of different authors to get all of those names in one place. Secondly, as this chronicle follows the history of Brutus's descendants, it gets up to the time of Julius Caesar, and it tells the story of Caesar's two attempted invasions of Britain. And the interesting thing here is that it gives details Caesar's version of the story doesn't mention, and it leaves out details that Caesar does talk about. In short, this isn't a story copied from the Roman history of their invasion, but a story written from the viewpoint of the natives, people who were being invaded. These details suggest that this history of Britain goes back to at least the early days of the Roman Empire. It's possible the history in the story before that point, the adventures of Brutus and the first settlement of Britain, might be fiction. But the accuracy of the rest of the chronicle makes me wonder if these old manuscripts are telling the truth more often than we give them credit for. If so, they fill in one of history's many missing links. And with that link, we can draw a line from our world today back through history to Britain, from Britain to Italy and the Romans, from Italy to Troy and Dardanus, and finally to Javan and Japheth. Put another way, if these stories are true, it ties our lives today right back to the world of Noah. And to me, that's a fascinating thought. Only, there's a very small word in there. If. If these stories are true. The specific chronicle that has the story of Brutus isn't discussed much. But it was translated by Geoffrey of Monmouth. And scholars often argue that Geoffrey wrote fiction. As for the tale of Aeneas, even though it comes up hundreds of years before Virgil wrote the Aeneid, one source argues that it was a common tradition simply used by the Romans because they felt inferior to the Greeks, and having a refugee from Troy, the enemy of the Greeks, be their fictional ancestor, helped with national pride. For the stories that are even older, the legends from Greece, there's some question about whether Homer, the traditional source of the Iliad and the Odyssey, perhaps the two most famous books of Greek literature, there's some question about whether Homer ever existed. In short, all these stories are speculative. They might be true, but they might not be. And if that's the case, if these stories are so unreliable, what's the point of learning them? The legends might be interesting, but how are they valuable? To me, some of the value in these stories are in the details and the coincidences. They're the names like Iapetos from Greek mythology, that's the same as Japheth from Genesis, or of the metalsmith god Vulcan from Roman legends who might be tied to Tubal Cain. There are the stories of floods, such as the one Deucalion lived through, which has details that sound a lot like the flood Noah survived. And it's worth noting that even if they could, 
the Greeks and Romans had no incentive to copy Genesis. They didn't want to say the Jews had history right while they were wrong. They would have argued that their own history was right. And that's why the similarities in these myths are so valuable. Because they come from people who didn't have an interest in supporting Jewish history or religion. And it suggests that, in the beginning, everyone remembered something of the same history. It gives you another reason to believe that Genesis is telling the truth in what it records. That could be the most useful piece. But then the legends continue and go past what Genesis talks about. And that's because the history in Genesis only goes so far. When it was written, people were probably still spreading out from Babel, and Genesis can only follow the first parts of their migration, going about as far as Noah's kids, grandkids, and a little beyond that. Looking at these legends, though, gives you a chance to see what people remembered about what happened after that point. And when you follow the traditions down through history, like I did from Japheth to Dardanus, to the Greek legends of the Trojans, the Roman legend of Aeneas, and on to the British story of Brutus, you get a glimpse of what people in the past perhaps believed about their own history. These stories might not be reliable, they might have lots of fantastic and mythological parts to them, but when you take them as a whole, you see that they don't tell the story of cavemen, but of civilizations that are linked to one another back through history. And when we extend those stories forward to the present day, it shows us how the world we live in might be connected back through time to those same people who left Babel behind and spread out around the world. There is a danger in doing this, though, because if you don't recognize the difference between these legends and the history in Genesis, you might combine them. Then, instead of just finding parallels between these tales and what Genesis records, you start adding to Genesis. And when you do that, it's something like taking a very bad photocopy of a book or an awful recording of a speech and using that copy to edit the original. Once you do that with one detail, where do you stop? I recognize that this is an argument that accepts that Genesis is a better reference than all these other legends. That's an assumption I make in this podcast. It's true, that assumption relies on faith. But this isn't blind faith. Scholars debate it endlessly, but I think there's ample reason to believe the stories found in Genesis. If you're unconvinced, try reading the history in Genesis, and then go read the myths passed down to us from other cultures. Which one reads more like a history book? If you needed to pick one that sounded the most reliable, which version of the past would you be willing to build your future on? Still. As with the legends in Babylon and Canaan and Egypt that I mentioned before, you could argue that these stories from Greece in the 700s BC might be similar because they were inadvertently influenced by people who had come across the stories from Genesis. Or maybe the legends from Rome were modified after the rise of Christianity. The records from Britain could have been changed by that Christian monk who translated them during the Middle Ages. I'm not saying that's what happened, just that there's always room for skepticism. But don't worry. Even if you discount the mythology from Greece and Rome and the legends from Britain, the list doesn't end there. These were the traditions passed along by just Javan's descendants, just one branch of Japheth's kids. And Japheth 
had other sons. Sons who have stories of their own. The plan for this episode was to talk about Japheth's kids, but they colonized so much of the world that I could only fit the stories from around the Mediterranean. The descendants who didn't follow the coastline, but went north and northwest and east, those will have to wait until next time. Until then, if you want to learn more about what we know from the people who left Babel and explored the Mediterranean coast of Europe, WiderBible.com has a lot of references and links to get you started. The website also has articles on other topics, as well as a place for you to ask questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.